Senator Rand Paul has released his annual report on government waste. This report, I mean, it reads like a comedy. It lists the millions of tax dollars spent, hundreds of millions, on absurd things by the government. Like, for example, studying the gambling habits of monkeys and paying people to babysit monkeys. And those are not jokes. Those are actually in the report. This report reads like the Babylon Bee. It turns out that the U.S. government is obsessed with monkeys and COVID relief, as we will explain. You cannot make this stuff up. We'll bring you all the highlights of the Rand Paul report coming up. Israel appears to be caving, appears to be capitulating to President Biden. This is according to multiple reports, quoting sources, very high-level sources in the Israeli government, saying that Israel is shifting strategy in Gaza, moving toward a more gentler approach to avoid civilian casualties and pander to Biden and pander to the Western world. They're hoping now to wear down Hamas rather than obliterate Hamas, as was originally the strategy. We will bring you all those disturbing details coming up. Plus, the New York Times has published an op-ed by the mayor of Gaza City. I mean, this is disgraceful. I would say this, the New York Times has sunk, sunk into a new low, but that's not really true. It's a tie because how many times, how many times have they hit rock bottom? Countless, countless times. I mean, they are just, they are filthy, disgraceful, just vicious, vicious, the New York Times. And add this one to the list, to the very, very long list. And amazing how the head of the New York Times op-ed section, as we'll explain, once had to be fi- had to resign. Remember a couple of years ago because they actually printed, published an op-ed from se- from a senator, from a sitting senator, Tom Cotton, that people found offensive because he wanted to crack down on BLM rioters. They had the, the head of the op-ed department of the New York Times had to resign in disgrace. And yet the Gaza City mayor, and nobody says a peep about this, the, the, the mayor of Gaza Gaza City uh, put, putting out this very vicious anti-Semitic uh, op-ed in the New York Times. A Colombian woman who crossed, a woman came from Colombia through Mexico, crossed illegally into Texas. She was released into the United States, like they all are, an asylum seeker, and she was told to come back, get this, for her asylum hearing in January. Well, what's the big deal, Yaakov? She was told to come back to appear for her asylum hearing in January after crossing in over the border illegally. She was told to come in January of 2031. 2031, seven years. You cannot make this stuff up. Literally, I actually saw the piece of paper that she was given where it's where, where the, the appointment piece of paper where it says you, you are due to appear in, in front of an asylum court in New York City in January of 2031. She, the ICE hearing to plead her case for asylum does not. Now, if it took place in three weeks, she would disappear and never show up, as we know. But literally 2031, I read the paper. The paper literally says due in New York City. It looks like just a regular, you know, like like a, like a, for any kind of court appointment or any kind of hearing or if you ever get a parking ticket or anything. Due in New York City hearing. Listen to this. January 23rd, 2031, between 7 and 9 a.m. in the New York Asylum Office. I mean, who even knows what will happen to New York City by that, that point in time? But, like, literally it says between 7 and 9 a.m. So they, like, get to that level of detail. But it's in almost, it's in over seven years, January 23rd, 23rd. This madness. And like I said, she's going to disappear. She would not ever return to her asylum uh, hearing. I don't care when, where, or how. But that's not the point. The point is that they are so incredibly backlogged. Millions and millions, literally seven million illegals. Seven million. Biden's only been president for three years. That's not that long in the scheme of things. Seven million. And this stuff does not happen by mistake. You have to realize, if Biden had left the system alone, 
then like some people, first of all, it, w- it was amazingly secure under Trump because Trump literally shut down the border. Forget COVID. Forget forget what Title 42. Forget all that. Remain in Mexico. Trump set it all up so that the, these illegals, these asylum seekers had to wait in Mexico for these asylum. If there was an asylum hearing in eight years uh, un- under Trump, that would have been good because they wouldn't have been able to come uh, and plead their case for eight years. They wouldn't have stuck in Mexico and they would have gone back home, of course, because they don't want to be in Mexico. So but if Biden, Biden had even just if he would just leave the system alone. Some people would get deported. Right now, nobody's getting deported. And that is because the Biden administration encourages them to bring everybody in, to invite them. He's a magnet. Remember, Biden said that he encouraged people to come in. They, they literally wear Biden T-shirts when they come in. They come in and they're, they're on video thanking President Biden for allowing them in. Seven million, you know, a seven year waiting period for asylum hearings. It's like coming to the country. We'll support you. Uh, and then, of course, what's going to happen? They're going to have American children or American citizens who are eventually going to go vote Democrat. So this is all done by design. It's a magnet. All the policies are set up uh, in order to literally attract these people. Trump had the problem fixed. All Biden had to do was do nothing. OK. And all right. So it's just it's just really, really, really it's just and and we talk about it, but it's catastrophic. I mean, because so many millions are coming in. It's a massive, massive uh, drain on this. It's totally overwhelming the system, the Medicaid and, uh, you know, healthcare, education, all the hotel rooms and everything else that's being spent on them. It's it's, it's just insanity. Like the stuff that this country is 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 a circus. I mean, it's a laughing stock. All right. So this year, listen to this. There's been a disturbing number of near misses of airplanes in airports around the country. It's the highest number in seven years. There have been 19 separate incidents. Now, 19, that's a lot. When you think about literally these planes nearly crashed into each other, you'll have sometimes a plane that wanders onto the wrong runway and there's another plane about to take off and have to abort. Sometimes these planes, you know, are both uh, cleared to take off in the same runway, you know, et cetera, those, those different types of scenarios. So 19 is very scary of plane near misses. And as one comedian, you know, once said, near miss, that's not a near miss. When when planes nearly collide, that should be called a near hit. Why is it called a near miss? But either way, that's in the, that's in just the first 10 months of 2023 in the United States. That's the highest number since 2016. And let me just say this, okay? Number one, air traffic control is run by the federal government, okay? I don't trust the federal government to wash dishes at a restaurant. I don't tr- trust the federal government to handle, to park my car, to handle like valet parking, at you know at uh, at a restaurant, so I certainly do not trust the federal government of all people with air traffic control. That's number one. I mean, what did Ronald Reagan say? President Reagan said, he said the scariest nine words on the in, in the English language are, "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." Okay, so that's number one. If Elon Musk were running air traffic control, uh, can you imagine if a private company, if, if if Elon Musk was was running, or you know Warren Buffett, or name another uh, entrepreneur who would be running air traffic control, it would be much better. Why is it that when I call any sort of government agency, I have to wait on hold for like 40 minutes, press all sorts of buttons, and usually I don't even get through. They hang up on me. But when I call Geico or when I call one of these other companies or MasterCard or whatever company, credit card company, one of these private companies, it's about 30 seconds. I get through to whoever I want to get through to. And the automated system even works much better. But it would just be so much more efficient and safer than it is now. I mean, look at SpaceX compared to NASA. Um, so part of the story here with air traffic control is, like I said, the fact that it's government run. But listen, it gets even deeper. 
offer because they have these diversity hires, right? There's affirmative action involved, and there's a shortage. We'll get to the shortage in a moment with air traffic control. But the diversity hires, what they do is they're hiring minority workers, and they're filling quotas with air traffic control. Now, can you think about So uh, I don't know, but I suspect that means that they're not hiring air traffic controllers based on how well they guide the airplanes and make sure airplanes don't crash. They're doing it based on skin color. Now, of all the things of diversity hires, okay, when, and we know there are some areas, you know, the, you know, by the way, the head of Harvard right now, who, forgetting the fact that she's a vicious anti-Semite, and it's all based on context, it depends on the context, putting that aside, that's a very big deal, but that aside, she's also a plagiarist, she's been guilty of, of, of plagiarism multiple times, and it's very well known and documented, imagine, the head of Harvard, the president of Harvard, is guilty of plagiarism. I mean, that, that is just a disgrace. That means that Harvard, they're, they're supposed to be these academic elitists, right? I mean, it, it, you cannot get more. Think about that. Think about that, that like the, the, what's supposed to be the gold standard in education in the United States. She's guilty of plagiarism, which is literally, it is the, it is thinking, it is the most slimy thing that you could ever do as an academic is plagiarized. It literally destroys the, the entire fabric. I'm not, a, I'm not big into higher education and I'm not big into college. But by their own standards, it, it, it just it just absolutely uh, removes any fabric of integrity that they have. Why is she not fired over the plagiarism, forgetting the anti-Semitism because of her skin color? It's very, very clear. But so affirmative action. OK, she's the president of Harvard. There's a limit to how much damage she can do. Now we're talking about air traffic control. You're, what's, what's next? You're going to hire a surgeon? Uh, you know, you're going to hire doctors and, and, and people who are supposed to save lives based on their skin color? That's insanity. But all right. But there is. A, is a, so, again, I don't know that that necessarily is tied to the to the near misses, but sure makes you wonder. But the other thing is there's a big shortage. Now, why is there a big shortage of air traffic controllers? It's a very stressful job, and they're not paid enough money. Trust me, they could solve the problem. If the, if the U.S. government would pay uh, a, a high enough salary for air traffic controllers, it would solve the shortage. There would be people who are willing to undergo the stress of air traffic control in order, you know, for the, do it for the money. So people would be banging down the door. It's all, to me, it's all a money issue. And here we are, we're wasting billions of dollars on COVID relief and on monkeys and on Ukraine and, uh, you know, and, and all these other government programs. And of course, on these illegals, billions, literally billions of dollars spent on these illegals. And here we are with a shortage, air traffic control that to me could easily be solved with money. And the, the, the these airplanes are in danger. It is just, it, 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 it's, it's ludicrous. This is lunacy. All right, according to NBC News, President Biden, remember that Chinese spy balloon? President Biden was actually trying and planning to keep the spy balloon. And when we say President Biden, you know, disclaimer, we don't mean President Biden because President Biden doesn't even, I'm not sure if he could spell the words Chinese spy balloon. But, uh, you know, if, if, if this massive thing was hovering over his head, I'm not sure he would even see it. But we mean the Biden administration. They were planning to keep the spy balloon a secret from both the country and even from Congress until it was discovered. And when I think of it, you remember, remember it was discovered by like some civilian, just somebody was like outside and like had binoculars and saw this massive, massive balloon in the sky and took a picture and realized, hey, wait a second, this is a Chinese spy balloon. How is nobody else? Well, like, where's the Pentagon? And the Pentagon, of course, was aware of it and just didn't bother telling anybody and didn't want to shoot it down until it was done spying. So uh, either way, they were actually planning to keep it a secret, but to their dismay, it got discovered and there were pictures and then they had no choice but to admit it. And, uh, you know, it was just it was just egregious. But either way, they were planning to literally try to keep it a secret, both from all of us and from the government. And this is what they do. And what I wonder is, 
What else are they keeping a secret? What else is going on? Is there a spot? Is there another? Are there 20 Chinese spy balloons that are just higher now? Maybe the Chinese figured out how to keep them, uh, you know, a little bit more discreet, how to keep them not as, you know, not as visible. I have no idea. But according to this is NBC News, NBC News quoted multiple sources uh, administration and congressional officials who confirmed that originally the plan was let's keep the balloon a secret from the public and from Congress. But, of course, then it got discovered. But here's the thing. This is part of a much more systemic issue, which is that Biden's foreign policy, it's not just China. China is just one example. Biden's foreign policy has been a total catastrophe. And, and, and it really is like frightening. It's not even the brink of, I don't even look at it as the brink of World War III, which is obviously very terrifying, but it's more like China and Russia and Iran. There's this alliance right now. China is building up their military. They are, they, they, they've told, they told Biden straight, straight out. They said, we are invading Taiwan too bad. We're going to take over Taiwan. I take them at their word. Putin invaded Ukraine. Putin has the world on edge right now. Uh, he's making a ton of money. Putin's making a ton of money in oil. China's making a ton of money. Iran's making a ton of money selling, selling oil. You have this um, alliance right now, very, very frightening alliance, and it's all Biden's fault. Iran has enriched uranium. We'll, we will get to that shortly. Uh, they're, they're, they've tripled the uranium enrichment. They're saying we're going nuclear. So Iran's telling you we're going nuclear, and they are. Like, we know it. It's been uh, confirmed by the IAEA, by the U.N., and uh, you have China saying we're taking over the entire Pacific. And then you have Russia saying, well, I'm, ta- I'm taking over all the Baltic states. And they're actually following through. And it's all because of Biden. So the foreign policy, if somebody wanted to, like, destabilize the world, right, if somebody like if, if, if a president came into office and said, how do I destabilize the world and hurt the United States as much as humanly possible? They literally would follow Biden's playbook to a T. You would do exactly what he has done between Iran tripling uranium enrichment, Biden lifted sanctions. He took off all these sanctions, took off the labels of terrorism, uh, terrorist labels from these uh, Iranian proxies. Iran knows they can enrich uranium to, to a very high degree, a massive stockpile, because they can. And there are no consequences. They're laughing at us. China literally said, we're going to invade Taiwan. We're taking control. We, yeah, like I said, the, Putin is making a fortune. Oil prices are higher than they've ever been, mainly because Biden basically shut down, essentially shut down oil production and oil drilling in the United States. So he's not competing with Putin. So Putin is the sole provider of oil and natural gas to the vast majority of the world. He, between Putin and, and, the Gulf, and the Arab Gulf states and China, they're the ones providing all these resources, the oil and natural gas, and doing it, by the way, in a way that pollutes the environment much more than if Western countries and if, and if, and if the United States did it. But that's not even my point. That's really not my agenda right now. But it's just, it shows you the hypocrisy that in the name of the climate, they, they stop drilling. And then it turns out that the drilling that is being done, because somebody's doing the drilling. So all you're doing is making these uh, evil countries filthy rich and hurting the environment even more. And amazingly, Trump had all these problems fixed. Think about that. Trump had these crippling sanctions placed on Iran. Iran was bankrupt thanks to Trump, uh, by the way. And Trump also bankrupted the Palestinians, defunded the Palestinians. Biden restored all those things, lifted sanctions on Iran and on Russia. Remember, you know, Biden lifted, he resumed the construction of the Nord Stream pipeline. One of the best moves Trump ever made. He said this Nord Stream pipeline is insane. You're giving Putin so much money and so much power. You, he, he, he owns, he controls 
the entire Europe with that Nord Stream pipeline. And Trump's like, what are you doing? You, you don't want this gives Putin more power. And then, then they go into giving Ukraine all this money saying, oh, Putin's an existential threat. We need to fight Putin. Ukraine's our way to fight Putin. No, he's not. The Nord Stream pipeline. Trump had it figured out. Trump crippled Putin. And then Biden, why on earth? that he For that itself, the man should be impeached. What, what possible rationale is there to restore funding to the Nord Stream pipeline? So literally, and, and of course, Trump was p- placing these crippling tariffs on China, which is probably why China went and released uh, the COVID vaccine, uh, the COVID virus, because they wanted to, number one, take revenge on China, but more on Trump. But more importantly, they wanted to push Trump out. And that's exactly how it played out. So this was like our worst nightmare. Trump did everything right. Trump had he, he, he literally crushed our enemies beyond all comprehension, beyond all, beyond all recognition. And Biden came in and reversed every single one of those policies. And look at the lesson, the lesson from the Hamas attack and the lesson from from COVID-9-11 over and over again in Iran with the nuke with the nukes. The lesson is these people are patient. These countries are patient. These terrorist organizations, terror groups, they are very, very patient. They will wait for years. Osama bin Laden did it. They will wait. They'll, they'll, they'll wait it out. The tr- Trump will come in and crush them, and they know that sooner or later, and they even help because they interfere with the elections in a lot of ways, but they wait until somebody comes into office like Biden, somebody who's weak, somebody who's going to go and reverse the policies, and then they ramp it up. Uh, up. So it really is uh, very, very disturbing. All right, we're going to get to other news here. I'm going to quote, I'm going to uh, mention a bunch of calls. we got a bunch of callers last few days, made a lot of interesting observations, so I'm going to get to that momentarily. Uh, I do want to mention a couple of people called up and said, what happened? You said you were going to try to do more frequent shows. You're going to do shorter shows, but more frequent shows, and it has not quite played out that way, which was a concern that we had from the start. Somebody even called up at one point and said, listen, I'm not voting for more shows because I just know it's not going to happen. So look, the answer is, I yeah, we didn't. I'm sorry if there, if anybody was expecting it and then it didn't quite play out the way uh, we expected or hoped or at least uh, told you we would attempt to do. I don't think I ever guaranteed it because we know. And long story short, I don't think we're going to be able to do three or four shows a week. I just don't think that's an option. I see as much as I try to do it. Uh, The reasons are logistical, but the reasons are just uh, insurmountable. And essentially, you know, it it takes a lot of time and effort to prep a show. And and that's more than I think anybody would imagine. Even to prep a 10, you can say, well, what's the difference? 10 or 12 minutes versus two shows that are 40 minutes. It doesn't matter. It's like it, 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 when you have to do it that that level of frequency and really get prepped and really it's it's hard to explain. I won't get into you know follow. I won't lead you through all of my uh, you know show prep and uh, what what exactly it entails. But just take my word for it that prepping three or four ten or twelve minute shows can be a lot more draining and a lot more to juggle than prepping. And believe me, two shows thirty five forty minutes each. That takes a long time. It takes a lot of time. Nobody, I think, who hasn't done it, or maybe you could understand if you think about picturing trying to do it yourself, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it's all in the prep. Like, you can't underrate. You know, I once heard Rush Limbaugh say that he he was not able to do uh, an interview. Somebody wanted to do, like, a television interview with him on a day that he does his show. He did a show three hours a day, 12 to 3. And uh, he said that literally somebody wanted to do an interview at a totally different time of day, and it was like a half hour, 40 minutes, What's the big deal? Why can't you do this interview, Rush? And, and he says, no, no, it's a show day. Like, you don't understand. My life is show prep. I do show prep around the clock. And I was so happy when I now I heard him say that a long time ago. I don't remember if I was doing, you know, uh, it was way before we started this version, but I've been doing different podcasts for quite a long time since probably 2006, 2007. So it was probably around then. And I'm like, wow, you know, good lesson there from Rush Limbaugh that 
He literally does show prep around the clock. It's not, it's not like you sit there, all right, I'm going to do show prep, now I'm going to go. You have to go and find the content, and then you have to go and prep it and think. You know, you can imagine. It entails an awful lot. So when he said that, uh, you know, I, I uh, it, it really was very impactful on me. So anyway, without getting into all, all the nitty-gritty of this, it, it was going to go back to, I think, the two shows a week. That's just how it's been happening now. With that said, I do think it might be helpful, and I am going to try to have more of a set schedule where we actually know when to expect the show to be released. So my thinking right now is, and I'm not certain about this, but this is going to be the new goal, is to at least have a day window where you know you can expect it that day, so at least you know what to expect. So right now my plan, my thought is to do it Sundays and Wednesday evenings, sometime on Sunday and then a show on Wednesday evening. And the way this is going to work is... You should have a new show by Thursday morning because Wednesday evening could be midnight, you know, so you should have a new show by Thursday morning. Again, if things go as planned, I'm just this is a thought. I don't want you to get the impression that this is some sort of commitment I'm making. As of now, this is like thinking out loud. This is like what I'm going to hope for. Okay, be cautiously optimistic. But uh, we're thinking Sunday show sometime on Sunday and then sometime on Wednesday evening. And now it might be Matzai Shabbos. You might get a show Matzai Shabbos, but hopefully it won't be later. Hopefully nothing later than Sunday Sunday evening, 6, 7 o'clock, and then nothing later than, let's say, Wednesday at midnight. That's going to be the goal is Sundays and Wednesdays or Sundays and Thursdays. I might switch it to Thursday. It might be Sunday and Thursday. But as of now, it'll uh, let, let's aim for that Sunday and Wednesday, and let's see how that goes. Welcome to the Yaakov M. Show. Welcome here. We are... Uh, what, 20 minutes in, uh, send us an email, josh at vinnews.com, josh at vinnews.com. Email us with anything on your mind. And, of course, we are on VIN News, Nucky Radio, Yeshiva International, other we're Spotify and other podcast platforms. All right, one caller said, oh, great point, great point. We mentioned last week that uh, 20% of voters believe that the country is headed in the right direction, which is nuts. What are those 20% thinking? So a caller made a great point. He said... Those 20% know that the country is going down. They agree. Nobody's debating. The, the 80% who feels the country is headed in the wrong direction, 20% feel the country is headed in, in, in the right direction. They all agree the country is going down. Just there are 20% who think that down is the right direction. They like the high inflation. They like the border crisis. They like the millions of illegals invading the country in droves. They like all of that because they know that it's going to lead to socialist woke policies. They know that it's going to, that, that out of that crisis is going to come out all sorts of new government programs. So I think that's a really great point. I think there's a lot of truth to that. A caller asked me why I say I keep saying that Gavin Newsom may end up being the candidate, may end up being the Dem- on the Democrat nominee instead of Biden. He said clearly in, the, in his debate with DeSantis, he said, "I'm not running. I'm I'm not going to run in 2024." He guaranteed that he wasn't going to run. And my response is, if I, you know, I, I I didn't pull up a list here, but if I had a nickel for every time a politician guaranteed something and then reneged on that guarantee, I mean, I'd be a very wealthy person. Uh, th- I'm sorry, but I'm just not phased by the fact. And look, I'm not saying, you know, if, if Newsom does not become the nominee, I still stand by the fact that I think it's a possibility. The fact that he's saying, you know, he'll I can picture the speech now. Well, uh, I didn't know, you know, Joe Biden, something will happen, some crisis. They'll, they'll come up with some health issue or something and he'll step down. And they'll draft Newsom. Newsom. I'm not saying it'll it'll happen for sure. I just don't rule it out. Just the fact that he said it. He said it because he's the governor of California, and because you can't say, well, I'm going to run instead of the president, because that would sound terrible. If he, if he said, oh yeah, you know, I'm thinking of running. Biden has said I'm running. 
Biden, Biden insists that he's running as of now. But, uh, you know, there could be so many things that pop up between now and then. And, yeah, the fact that a politician guaranteed something, sorry, but I just don't put a lot of stock in that. Uh, a caller said that we should actually not, you know, I'm talking about disqualifying Biden from the ballot the way they did to Trump in Colorado. States should disqualify Biden from the ballot as well and fight fire with fire. And look, I'm not saying that I think that's the best political move, but Republicans are doing it. And a caller said, listen, bad idea, because then we're stooping to their level because we're we're saying don't knock Trump off the ballot because that's not de- democracy. Democracy is let the voters decide. So by knocking Trump off the ballot, you're basically taking it the decision out of the hands of the voters. That is anti-democratic. Caller said, well, then we're doing the same thing as Biden. So really interesting question. But and this gets into a very, very fundamental question, which is, let's say, you know, so the caller wants to take the high road. All right. Well, they're going to knock Trump off the ballot. Let's let's pretend let's pretend they knock Trump off the ballot. Right. I think the Supreme Court's going to overturn it. Michigan, by the way, the Supreme Court is keeping the Michigan State Supreme Court is keeping Trump on the ballot over there. They tried to knock him off. But let's just pretend, right, they knock Trump off the ballot. We said, we're going to take the high road, right? Let's say that Trump loses the election as a result of that. Well, it's only one state. Let's pretend, just thought experiment, let's say 10 states. Let's pretend that 10 states, they knock Trump off the ballot, and we say, all right, we're not going to knock Biden off the ballot because we're going to take the high road. We're not going to stoop to that level. We're not going to suppress democracy. But what if Trump loses as a result of that? Are you willing, are there times when you need to stoop to their level? I'm not saying start it, but but, but, but in, in response to them, uh, you, you, you do what they do. And even though you're not sticking with your principles, but it means you're going to lose. And if you're going to lose, then that's going to cause the country to really, really get crushed, really, get, really tank and go down. If they win, it'll hurt the country. So in other words, the question is, are there times when you kind of play dirty and you kind of need to, uh, do the same things they're doing? as opposed to taking the high road, but in order to enable your values and principles to be implemented long term. So I think it's an interesting debate. I don't think it's such a simple question. I think it's actually pretty fascinating. Another caller said that he doesn't believe that 8% of people were offered a reward for their mail-in vote. We vote. We told you last time about these uh, staggering poll numbers uh, showing that uh, the survey that uh, people in 2020, a lot of mail-in voters actually voted illegally and the votes don't count. So 8% of people who responded to the survey said that they were offered either payment or a reward for their mail-in vote. Uh, this caller said, no, that's high. 8% of people were paid for their vote. He doesn't believe it. I have no problem believing it personally. I have no idea. But it, it, again, the, the wording was payment or reward. So it doesn't mean that they were somebody gave them a $100 check. It means they got some kind of incentive. So to me, imagine if like the local Democratic club in Michigan, somewhere in Detroit or Philadelphia, came down to a senior center, right? Said, all right, here are a bunch of mail-in ballots. We're going to give you a Starbucks gift card, right? Or we're going to give you some kind of like Amazon gift card or some kind of free uh, device or something in return for, you know, some kind of cute little thing in return for you voting, in return for your mail-in ballot, right? And then they got them all to fill out, vote for the Democrats. That doesn't surprise me at all that tactics like that might have been used. So I'm not saying they were. I have no idea. But I don't see why it's so unreasonable, so unrealistic. A caller asked, uh, how could Trump pick Haley? And I don't think Trump is going to pick Nikki Haley as his running mate, honestly. I think she's too – Trump doesn't like people who are loud, who might kind of steal the spotlight from him. Uh, You know, that's why he likes Pence. Pence is more quiet and subdued. So I think Nikki Haley is a little bit too boisterous for Trump's taste. But caller said – that he called her a broad, uh, a bird brain or some kind of nickname. So how is he going to pick somebody who he's insulted? And to which I say, if Trump, uh, didn't pick 
a running mate, if, if, if Trump's criteria of being a running mate, running mate is somebody who he never called any nicknames, I think that pretty much uh, eliminates every single option. <laughs> I don't know who Trump has not called a nickname. So I don't know that that, that that is quite the criteria, the fact that he once called her a nickname. Like I said, I have other reasons for thinking it, but I, I don't think it's out of the question. All right, so the New York Times, this is just uh, un, unthinkable. New York Times published an op-ed from the mayor of Gaza City spewing vicious propaganda, telling lie after lie. And look, the New York Times, they have always been a propaganda wing of Hamas and of the Palestinians. And, uh, and, and anti-Israel, anti-Israel propaganda is commonplace in the New York Times. But the incredible thing is, and we'll read you some quotes here. This is Yaya Saraj, the mayor of Gaza City, just blasting Israel and just saying these, these, telling these vicious, vicious lies. But then you had a U.S. Senator, Tom Cotton, who wrote an op-ed about protecting the police from violent BLM rioters. And literally, you had hundreds of New York Times staffers who, there was a walkout, hundreds of New York Times staffers protested against Tom Cotton, a senator, a U.S. senator. They, they, they literally forced the head of the opinion section of the Times, the opinion department, the op-ed department, to resign. They forced him to resign because he... Uh, committed this terrible, terrible uh, act of uh, this this uh, this offensive act of of of, of publishing an op-ed by a senator of the United States, United States Senator Tom Cotton, saying you got to protect the police from these rioters who want to kill police. And uh, he said to send in troops. He did say that you should send in National Guard troops to deal with the BLM rioters when all else fails, which was it's not at all controversial. And the New York Times initially defended the op-ed and actually talked about they invoked free speech. Wow, free speech, what a novel idea. And then, of course, the New York Times reneged and realized what a terrible, grave mistake they made by actually publishing an op-ed of a sitting senator. But the mayor of Gaza City. And nobody's protesting, nobody's saying a peep, nobody's resigning, it's unreal. So this is the Yahya Saraj, uh, here's what he wrote. He wrote that the gem of Gaza City was destroyed by Israeli bombardment. Listen to this. Quote, the Israeli invasion has caused the deaths of more than 20,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, and destroyed or damaged about half the buildings and in the territory. The Israelis have also pulverized Gaza City's cultural riches and municipal institutions. All right, end quote. Now, a couple of things, we, I'll quote you some more. Uh, excerpts here, but 20,000 people, they're according to the Gaza Health Ministry. We know that number's a lie. Biden said that that number's a meaningless number. Gaza Health Ministry is Hamas. It's literally run by Hamas. They, 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 they lie about numbers and statistics all the time. We have no idea. I realize that number 20,000, it even messes with my brain, right? Because well, we say, oh, the number wasn't 20,000. Well, what's the number? Number one, these people are not innocent civilians because you know how many so-called innocent civilians in Gaza are actually members of Hamas in some way. It doesn't mean that they're actually uh, the ones who are wearing suicide uh, vests, but they somehow are involved with Hamas, lots of them. But also, how do we know how many deaths there were? But we have no idea how many deaths there were. So I, in my mind, it's like, oh, there weren't 20,000. Maybe there were 11,000, right? Like, I don't know, uh, 10,000. That number 20,000, it anchors you. It has a psychological impact even on us. And we know we dismiss that number. That number is meaningless. It's a meaningless number. It's made up from thin air. But you know what? It even brainwashes us to think, well, maybe there were 500 deaths. Maybe the Israelis only killed 500 innocent civilians in Gaza right now since the war. Now, but that's unlikely. We know the bombing. This area, how do we know? How do we know? This, this, the, these numbers on the Gaza Health Ministry, they do have an impact on all of us, you know, subconsciously. And the most incredible part of this is he's talking about how they destroyed Gaza City's cultural riches. You know, I'll keep reading about all the wonderful things in Hamas, in, in Gaza City that they destroyed. And as somebody pointed out, 
what they should be, the, the, the takeaway here from this op-ed is that look how incredible, incredibly built up Gaza City was. Look at all the incredible cultural wealth that Gaza City had thanks to the Israelis. It was literally run by Hamas, this terror group, arch enemy of Israel, and Israel let Gaza City flourish and thrive into in this beautiful city. And, and that's what comes out of this op-ed. Quote, here, the op-ed criticized Israel for destroying the zoo, the public library, the Children's Happiness Center. Um, quote, the Israelis pulverized Gaza's city's cultural resources, municipal institutions, the iconic symbols, its beautiful seafront, its libraries, archives, and whatever economic prosperity it had broke my heart. So Clifford May, founder and president of Foundations for Defense of Democracies, quote, I wonder how many of those reading this essay note that. Uh, Gaza had a cultural center, a theater, a public library, a beautiful seafront, a zoo, a children's happiness center, recreation spaces, small cafes and parks, end quote. And he wrote uh, this mayor, Saraj, why did the Israeli tanks destroy trees, electricity poles, cars and water mains? Why would Israel hit a U.N. school? The obliteration of our way of life in Gaza is indescribable. Uh, it is really, really just disgraceful. The New York Times, it really has sunk to a new low in many ways. Uh, Arsene Ostrovsky, CEO of the International Legal Forum, very strong supporter of Israel, wrote, quote, I wonder, would the New York Times publish an op-ed from al-Qaeda justifying 9-11? Of course not, but there is no red line to this paper's Jew hatred. In 2020, senior editor at the New York Times resigned because of a, 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 a of an op-ed written by Tom Cotton. And it's incredible because Tom Cotton was misquoted. First, the Times, they defended and they said, listen, freedom of speech. Like they actually had to defend the fact, oh, yeah, well, we, we let a sitting senator, a U.S. senator publish an op-ed saying these BLM protesters are a danger and a threat to police. You need to send the National Guard. And he didn't even write send the National Guard. He just said when all else fails, if you have no other option and the police are overwhelmed, then you should use the National Guard. You should consider them as an option, which is not controversial. It's a no-brainer. I mean, what he wrote was a no-brainer. And he said he had not called for troops to be used against protesters, but should be called on as a backup if police are overwhelmed. He slammed uh, this James Bennett, who literally resigned in disgrace for publishing this op-ed of a sitting senator. And he says, uh, Tom Cotton said, well, they reversed their initial decision. They defended it. The New York Times, first, they defended it. They actually, they put out a statement saying, listen, freedom of speech. And... um then they totally changed when they realized that hundreds of uh, New York Times employees were staging a walkout. The Times egregiously reversed their defense. And then James Bennett, this is so pitiful, he put out a statement. He, he had a meeting with staff members. He said he had not read the essay before it was published. Well, what are you, you're literally publishing a, an op-ed piece? I don't believe it. But it's such a pitiful excuse. Uh, you're publishing an op-ed piece from, from a Republican senator in the New York Times, and you don't actually read the essay before it was published, and then the Times issued a statement saying the essay fell short of their of the New York Times standards. Yeah, I guess it wasn't uh, anti-Semitic enough for them. Quote, we've examined the piece, the process leading up to the publication. The review made clear a rushed editorial process led to the publication of an op-ed did not meet our standards, and they made short-term and long-term changes. They even, you know, they're reducing the number of op-eds we publish. Yeah, reducing the number of op-eds. In other words, they reduced the number of Republican-written op-eds. They, 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 they totally suppressed freedom of speech, and now it's only going to be uh, leftists uh, uh, writing in the op-ed, which is exactly what happened with the New York Times. So uh, on Thursday morning after this op-ed was written, this is back in 2020, Salzberger, the head of the New York Times, was defending it. He said, and again, they're, they're making these lame excuses. We didn't read it as, as an excuse. He sent an email defending the publication. Quote, I believe in the principle of openness to a range of opinions, even those he may disagree with. And this piece was published in that spirit. Remember, he had read the op-ed at that point. It was after it was published. He had already read it. And he defended it. 
And then by Thursday night, so that's a few hours later, he had a different tone. He sent a message to employees. He said it was a rushed editorial process that did not meet our standards. Unbelievable. All right. Um, we got a lot of uh, the war, the, the Rand Paul report. Oh, boy. Wow. All right. We really are running out of time. here. This is long. All right. Rand Paul report. DOD um, destroyed more than $169 million of military equipment by leaving it outside. They left $169 million worth of military equipment. This is insane. Outside and the weather, the rain, whatever uh, weather issues that it had caused the, that to be destroyed. Uh, $236 billion were made on payments, mis- mistake payments. $236 billion. This is insane. Payments made to either the wrong person in the wrong amount or for the wrong reason. So $236 billion were paid to either the wrong person or uh, money that should not have been paid or the wrong amount, which is uh, an insane amount of money. And then we're never going to get that money back. $8,300 on a lobster tank for the DOD. $38 million in COVID stimulus payments to people who were dead, including $10 million dispersed to people who were deceased on the date that it, it, they, that they applied or whoever it was that applied for the funds. $1.3 million given to 30 individuals who were dead for at least a year. Pictures of Barbie dolls were used as profile pictures by scammers who applied for PPP loans. They literally, people apply for PPP loans, they have to show uh, a picture of their own, of themselves, so their profile. And pictures of Barbie dolls were used as their profile pictures for many of these people. And there was an AI verification system, but it did not flag the pictures. It actually fooled the AI program. Unbelievable. The SBA spent $200 million on pandemic uh, relief funds, COVID relief funds, to struggling artists. But some of that money was used to actually give famous musicians, literally musicians that are worth millions and millions of dollars. Some of them got the money that was meant for struggling artists, COVID relief money, $659 billion spent on interest on the national debt. Interest payments, $659 billion, which is off the charts. And Rand Paul said, we borrow from China to pay the interest on money that we cannot afford to spend in the first place. Um, and multiple examples of waste involving monkeys. The NIH paid a company $33 million to babysit for 3,000 monkeys on an island in, in South Carolina, near off of South Carolina, before it was sent out for, to be used for to research labs uh, for experiments. $12 million to study the sleep habits of monkeys who were given meth, which is a dangerous drug. There was a grant paid to study Russian cats walking on a treadmill. Uh, the NIH spent $171,000 studying the gambling habits of monkeys. That experiment began in 2014. It's continued for a decade. Gambling habits, no no joke. NIH funded $3.8 million to study COVID misinformation exposure on social media among black and rural communities. $6 million to boost tourism in Egypt. And the Department of Agriculture spent money on cutting-edge research measuring the temperatures of 16 dogs and found that their fur color did not affect their body temperature after a hot summer walk. Well, that is very crucial information. Boy, am I glad to know whether the fur color of a dog affects its body temperature. All right, so we're going to have to just touch on what's going on with Israel and the Gaza war. We have a lot there, but uh, really don't have time. So we're going to limit it, and I guess we're going to have to pick it up because this is very crucial stuff. But in a nutshell, you have a little bit of a revolt going on. You have people in Likud, you have Knesset members and uh, members of, of of Bibi Netanyahu's cabinet who say that Netanyahu is uh, caving into Biden and they're putting troops in harm's way because they used to have these 
massive bombardments, massive airstrikes clearing out the terrorists, and that would lead to more civilian casualties. And, uh, of course, Biden has been very critical of Netanyahu. So uh, the, the Nir Barkat is saying that uh, Bibi Netanyahu is actually endangering troops and capitulating to Biden. And instead of carpet bombing, now they're doing the, these more surgical strikes. And that is, the, the, there is, there's an uptick. You see, there are more troops every day, you know, more soldiers. Rahman al-Latzlan, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific. It is really, really tragic. Every single one, obviously, is a terrible, terrible unspeakable, unthinkable tragedy, beyond comprehension. And the fact that they're putting these troops in harm's way because they don't want to, you know, hurt Gazan civilians, assuming that's even happening, which we don't know for sure, and Biden is pressuring Netanyahu, that's a very big deal. But it gets even bigger because, um, according to one report, the, the Israel's shifting their entire strategy. They're basically winding down this phase of the war. And now they're going to, to use less military force, get soft on Hamas, and try to undermine Hamas rather than carpet bomb. That is a quote from uh, Channel 12 in Israel's military correspondent. It sounds to me like what the United States did in Afghanistan, which was a disaster, which was wind down the war. So, you know, to, just enough to make it very dangerous for the troops, but not enough to actually root out and dismantle uh, the, the terrorists, which is what the goal was. It sounds like they now are not planning to dismantle Hamas a- anymore, which has been my fear from day one. Channel 12, a military correspondent near Devori, uh, says the IDF is adjusting its strategy, shifting from high-intensity combat to a sustained low-intensity engagement aimed at undermining Hamas. The strategic change coincides with demands from the United States for Israel to reduce its intense bombardments and its troop incursions into urban areas. And also, supposedly, there's a deadline set for January by Biden officials, by Biden administration officials to Israel, saying that, you know, they need uh, they need to stop the, um, you know, the, 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 the strategy that they've been doing until now. So this is a, a recipe to me for guerrilla warfare by Hamas, that they're shifting to low-intensity fighting. Tavori explained the rationale behind the new military approach. The assumption behind the change in strategy is that the defeat of Hamas will not be achieved via a massive ground offensive, but via a long war of attrition. It could take months, even years, but creating a new reality in Gaza will require a diplomatic process. Think about those words here. They're not having a massive ground offensive anymore. That's not the way to defeat Hamas. Now it's going to be a long war of attrition. A, tr- a war of attrition basically means they're going to wait them out. They're going to basically keep, uh, you know, keep fighting Hamas until Hamas has no choice but to eventually give up. We know that doesn't happen. And it's going to be a diplomatic process. It's going to be a diplomatic process as opposed to a military process. That sounds like classic, like United States DOD type of strategy, which, which is, which, which fails. It's a complete, it's a recipe for failure, in my opinion. Yuli Edelstein, Chair of the Knesset's Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee acknowledged the shift in strategy during a meeting. Quote, as the fighting progresses, Israel is transitioning to the third stage from the second stage of military operation, which is basically preparing and bracing for a prolonged conflict and a low-grade, low-intensity conflict. So again, according to multiple Israeli officials, Netanyahu is endangering ground troops, and it's because of Biden. Um, and like I said, Nir Barkat, and Netanyahu almost admitted it, because Nir Barkat said... You're you're caving into pressure from the United States, placing IDF soldiers at risk unnecessarily, and near near Barkat got a lot of backlash for this. But but Netanyahu, in response, justifying his policies, this is a quote from Netanyahu. I saw this in I think the Times of Israel. Quote: There are countries whose positions we have to take into account. If we do not do that, eventually there'll be a UN decision to impose a blockade on us. The whole world will be against us. End quote. So what's Netanyahu? It, it, to me, he's basically 
conceding the point there. He's basically conceding and admitting, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to contradict you. Maybe we are putting soldiers in harm's way. Maybe this is not the best strategy to dismantle Hamas and to protect Israeli lives. But, but we don't want the whole world to be against us. We don't want the UN to impose a blockade. So basically, we don't want to get sanctioned. So to me, that's a stunning, and I'm amazed this didn't get more publicity, more visibility, this uh, this quote from, from Netanyahu. But in my mind, he was basically saying, I don't disagree with you. You're right. This might endanger the lives of soldiers. This might be a bad military strategy, but we have to take the positions into account of other countries and the UN and, and potential blockade. Like, they never did that. Israel never, ever caved in to demands from the UN and worried about blockades and those things. It's very interesting to me now that Netanyahu suddenly, you know, that's because that's something in the past where they, they didn't really take into account and uh, I don't know. I don't. And usually Biden and the leftists and Obama, those that that kind of pressure. Netanyahu usually was able to ignore and withstand and resist for the sake of doing what's best for Israel. So, again, there's got a lot more going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to. But it is very, very upsetting news. If it's true, that's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.